Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Paul began his letter with a call to the Christian. He now continues to describe our present possessions in Christ. This chapter begins with praise to God for what we've received, and then it's going to continue with Paul's prayer to God for what we require in verses 15 through 23. So again, the verses from verse 3 to, to, to verse 14 is one continuous sentence in the Greek language. In the ancient world, they didn't have colons and apostrophes. They certainly had periods when you would come to one thought. In this one sentence, Paul is going to pen our past and our present and our future in Christ. It's Paul's understanding of God's master plan. This is Christ's blueprint for our election in the past, that's verses 3 through 6 at the beginning of the verse, and then our redemption in the present, the end of verse 6 all the way to verse 11, and then our inheritance in the future in verses 12 through 14. We're going to be talking about words that are going to be difficult to comprehend and understand, but let me try to make it as simple as possible. When Paul speaks about election, he's going to be referring to the past. When he talks about predestination, he's going to be talking about the future. We are beings who live in time. We understand that there is a past and a present and the future, but in God there is a continual now. And so the Holy Spirit is going to pin through Paul a human perspective. We may also say that the passage is going to shift focus from the Father in verses 3 through 6, to the Son, at the end of verse 6 to verse 11, to the Holy Spirit in verses 13 through 14. Even though the sentence is going to be weighty and difficult, like fudge, we need to be able to take it one bite at a time. You've probably heard me say over and over again, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. It'll eventually go away. And so, Paul is going to take us on a journey. And the journey is going to take us to the very throne of heaven where Jesus is seated in heavenly places. And what is the surprise when we see Christ in heaven? Paul reveals we're there with him. Not in the future, but now. If you are in Christ, in some remarkable way, heaven isn't just something that you look forward to. It is something that's a part of you. Much of our life is spent with looking around at this present world, the physical circumstances. I remember long, long ago when I was a freshman in college and I took Psych 101, we were forced to read Alfred Adler and Abraham Maslow who popularized what every freshman psychology student knows as the hierarchy of human needs. In Adler's hierarchy, there were 
security needs. There were significant needs. There were satisfaction through personal power needs. Some Christians who have abandoned a biblical worldview suggest that physical needs and safety needs and love and belonging needs and self-esteem have to be present. If you are going to love God and love others. But the Bible provides a different view. Of how the Christian sees herself. How the Christian sees himself. How the Christian understands self. In this passage we get to ask the question. How does God see me? According to the Bible, the only way a person can have a lasting legacy and eternal perspective is to have a right relationship with their creator, with God. You probably have already figured it out that if money or fame or sex or human achievement filled the void inside of you, you would expect the richest people in the world, the most famous people in the world, the porn stars of the world, the movers and shakers of human government, that these would be the most content and satisfied people in the world. But has that been your experience? That's because it's not true. And there's something powerful as we look around in this world, as it invites us to find satisfaction and contentment in something other than Christ. We live in a world where life has been trivialized into a series of, of slogans. In the ancient times, Burger King used to say, have it your way. L'Oreal used to say, because you're worth it. McDonald's, of course, I'm loving it. Or my favorite, Purina Dog Chow. All you need to add is love. <laughs> Until you own the dog. And then the dog owns you. So what makes a person valuable? It depends on who's making the evaluation. How does God value a person apart from Christ? We know clearly that people are made in the image of God. Human beings are created by God, for God, in the image of God, and have intrinsic value, yet the person apart from Christ has no spiritual value, no standing before God, no purpose, no meaning in the world. He is like chaff which the wind drives away, as it's recorded in Psalm 1-4. And so, we begin. We are blessed. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God of our Father and of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. We see the word bless, blessing, blessed. And of course, the word blessed means happy. We might think of biblical happiness in terms of contentment and peace and joy. Again, I'm, I'm fond of thinking of biblical concepts in terms of a recipe. If you were going to somehow create blessing, it would have equal parts of contentment, equal parts of peace, equal parts of joy. The word blessing here is singular in the middle of the verse, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, here when it means blessed, it literally means a celebration of praise concerning who God is. And then when it says, who has blessed us with every spiritual note, blessing. It doesn't say spiritual blessings. It's singular. And in the middle voice, it's the Greek word eulogia. It means, again, to celebrate with praises. We have a familiar English word. On Monday, we had a funeral. Bob did a, a wonderful job at that funeral. Tomorrow, we have yet another funeral. 
During a funeral, there's sometimes a portion in the funeral where a person presents what's called a eulogy. It comes from that word, eulogia. It means to speak well of or to speak on behalf of. It, it, it means praise, prosper, or bestow blessings. When David wrote, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. In Psalm 103, verse 1, David was speaking well of the Lord. So the very nature of God is love and goodness. God is good, and God does good things. This is why Paul can write that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the singular. Because Paul is using the word spiritual blessing. He's drawing it in a profound contrast, I suspect, against that which is simply material, which is physical and tangible. Now, we might be tempted to just establish an artificial divide between what is physical and spiritual. But I'm going to suggest to you that whatever the blessing means, it probably incorporates all the physical things that God has provided for you. A place to stay and food to eat and, and a provision that's made for you. Wiest writes, quote, the expression is a large one covering all the good that comes to us by grace. He also writes, whether the assurance of immortality, the promise of the resurrection, the inheritance of the kingdom of heaven, the privilege of adoption. He goes on and on. I wrote a short list that I'm going to add throughout our study in the book of Ephesians. My little short list of blessing in Christ. Salvation, Ephesians 2.8. Justification, Romans 3.24. Victory over sin, Romans 5.20. The power to testify, Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Strength for service, 2 Timothy 2.1. A spirit of generosity, 2 Corinthians 8.7. Sweetness in singing, Colossians 3.16. The ability to stand, 1 Peter 5.12. Strength and suffering, 2 Corinthians 12.9. We begin to pile on the blessing. Salvation, justification, victory over sin, power to testify. Strength, generosity, sweetness, the ability to stand. Strength to go forward. And now all of a sudden we begin to understand something. That Paul, from the start, is issuing a concrete statement that everything that we have for contentment, for peace, for prosperity with God and from God, who has, and, and you note this, don't let it slip by you, who has blessed, not who will bless in the future. Or if you wait long enough, there's going to be a blessing. Or he might bless you in some distant land that we call heaven. Or he might bless you if you're good enough. Or if you have a day where you go by where you don't sin. That's not what the text is saying. He's giving a concrete blessing of the God who is determined to bless us in Christ in every way. When Paul writes these words, I want you to just put it in perspective for just a moment because sometimes we sometimes lose perspective. Remember, Paul has now been saved for about 25 years. It's been 25 years since he left Jerusalem and was making his way to Damascus and he had a vision from heaven and a voice from heaven that said, Saul, Saul, it's hard to kick against the pricks or the goads. There's, the Holy Spirit has been jabbing him, reminding him, suggesting and, to him that there's something wrong in his life. And remember, he says, who are you? And he says, I'm the Lord Jesus Christ whom you persecute. He hadn't persecuted Jesus. He had just persecuted the Jesus followers. But Paul understood what Jesus was saying, that if you hurt when he hurts you, he hurts Jesus. And so 
A decade has gone by, and another decade has gone by. He's made his way on a couple of missionary journeys. He's gone back to Jerusalem. He's been arrested. He found himself in Caesarea. He was on trial, and he wouldn't get a fair trial. So he's made an appeal to Caesar, and he's made his way back to Rome, and he's in house arrest when he's writing these words. He's getting ready to stand trial. There is the severe possibility because he is going to face trial before Caesar Nero and there is the severe possibility of punishment or death. It's in that context and under those circumstances that he writes these words. And you might be tempted to think, well, if God is such a good God, if God is such a gracious God, if God is such a loving God, then how do you explain my trouble? How do you explain my sorrow? How do you explain my pain? How do you explain my life? Why is my life littered with frustration or difficulty or depression? In this passage, we discover what Paul has discovered. That the source of our blessing is the Father. And the character of that blessing is spiritual. Look what it says in the verse. Who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We're going to later discover that we're sealed by the Holy Spirit in verse 13, who's been given to us as a down payment. The power of blessing is the Holy Spirit in Galatians 3.14. The promise of blessing comes from the scripture according to Hebrews 6.14. James, the brother of Jesus, in James chapter 1 verse 17 wrote, every good and perfect gift is from heaven above and comes down from the father of lights in whom there is no shadow or turning. One translation says no variation or shadow of turning. The idea being that no matter which way you look at it, God is unchanging. We bless God who is the source of blessing. And then he blesses us with the substance of blessing. And now we see the sight of blessing. It comes from heavenly places. And again, this is in contrast to physical places. This is the place... This is the invisible, eternal realm. The expression in the heavenly places means in heaven, but it means... I'm going to suggest to you something way more. It means the primary place where God dwells. It means the place where Jesus advocates for us. Vine says it means, quote, heavenly, or everything that pertains to, or that is in heaven, the, the Greek word epi, in the sense of pertaining to, or has something to do with. And so Paul describes the present position of believers in relationship to Christ in heaven. And by the way, the phrase is going to occur five times in this epistle. And nowhere else in the New Testament. Over and over again, Lightfoot writes, quote, the heaven of which the apostle here speaks is not some remote locality. It's not some future abode. It is the heaven which lies within and about the Christian. He is giving us a glimpse that in some very mysterious way when we are around each other we are near heaven this struck me because have you ever said or have you ever wanted to say I can't wait to get to heaven Paul reveals in a very real sense you're already there 
you are already there. You're seated in the heavenly place with Jesus. We are not promised, again, every material blessing, but we are we are given every spiritual blessing. These spiritual blessings come to us from the Father who is in heaven, and then it comes to us as we experience fellowship in the Son. Ralph Earl says, quote, we cannot have the blessings without him. The greatest blessing any can enjoy is the conscious presence of Christ in the heart, unquote. And this is exactly right. This is part of what Paul is saying, that anyone who simply pretends to some sort of spiritual blessing apart from Christ is fooling himself or herself and trying to fool you. The channel of that blessing is Christ. In Luke 24, 30, and there's the, the story after the resurrection of Jesus. Many of you remember that Cleopas and a friend have left Jerusalem. They've left the empty tomb. They've left the angelic testimony. They've left the testimony of the women. They're walking away from Jerusalem. They're walking towards Emmaus. And you'll remember Jesus shows up and he begins to speak to them. And he, he asks them, tell me why you're so bummed out. And they go, Haven't, are, did you just fall off a potato truck? Where have you been? Haven't you heard what's happened? Jesus has been killed and we thought he was the Messiah. And Jesus began to reveal to them from Genesis and the writings and on this seven mile hike, this amazing Bible study. And when you get to the end of the verse, it, he, Jesus, it says, breaks bread. It says, uh, at the end of the journey, he took bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to them in verse 31. It says, then their eyes were opened and they knew him. And then he vanished from their sight. There was this spiritual event that took place because of the presence of Jesus. Sometimes our focus on the trial or the temptation, or the circumstance causes us to ignore the source of our blessing, the Father, and the channel of our blessing, the Son. Our spiritual blessing is in the heavenlies and in Christ. And those two simple words are going to form the foundation of Paul's theology as he begins to express everything that we have in Christ. Paul's theology is decidedly Christocentric. Jesus is the way to God. Jesus is the knowledge of God. Now this becomes very important, particularly for the person who wants to bypass Jesus. For the person that you know who says, I want to know God, but I have no interest in Jesus whatsoever. The Bible reveals you'll never really know God. And you'll never experience blessing till you know the Son. We cannot obtain spiritual blessing apart from Jesus. And so when the New Testament says Jesus is our mediator, he is what connects us to the Father, it is exactly right. Clearly, Paul declares that we're in Christ. The question that I would suggest you ask is what does that mean? What does it mean to be in Christ? In order to be in Christ, you have to be saved. To be in Christ means you've experienced regeneration. It means that you come to that place where the emptiness and the darkness and the wickedness and the sin that used to mark your life no longer marks your life, but you've received Christ. You've been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. The next question you need to ask is, well, how do I remain in Christ? Well, you remain in Christ by abiding in Christ. You abide in him. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my word abide in you, you will ask what you will and it shall be done. There's this sustained abiding in Jesus alone is safety, salvation, 
protection, peace, salvation, protection, peace. It isn't found in church. It isn't found just simply showing up. It isn't found in this or that. It is found in Christ. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not trying to, to tell you, well, go away. I want you to be here. But I want you to know that every spiritual blessing is found in Christ. And blessing comes from abiding in him. And note what Paul says, we are blessed and we are chosen. Look what it says in verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Paul praises God because he has chosen us in him. The word chosen is ek, which means out of, and lego, not like the little building blocks that you give your children. It's a word that means to pick out or to make a choice for yourself. The image is that you've got a lot to choose from and then you pick for yourself. Now, we might wrongly imagine a person who opens up a treasure chest. My granddaughter has this treasure chest, and in it she keeps little jewels. It's the little treasures that she has accumulated, precious objects, jewels, priceless things of matchless beauty. But you would be mistaken. The Lord doesn't choose us from a treasure trove. He chooses us from a garbage dump. Imagine I take you all to the dump and I go, whatever, just pick whatever you want. Whatever piece of trash suits you. The reason why I'm, I'm, I'm saying it that way is because that's what the Lord does. He's not, he's not choosing from treasure. He's choosing from garbage. Some want to make God's choice some sort of theological riddle rather than what it really is. It's a tribute to God's love. It's a tribute to God's grace. It's a, it's a tribute to God's mercy for the person who's left with the, with the impression, man, you really got a winner when you picked me. That person's deceived. In the New Testament, by the way, the phrase occurs 21 times. In the King James Version, choose, choose out, make a choice. But the adjective de de derived from eklektos is translated elect 16 times, chosen 7 times. In verse 3, Paul reveals the source and the sphere of our blessing. The source, the Father, the sphere in heaven. In verse 4 and 5, he begins to talk about the scope or the magnitude of our blessing. We have been chosen in verse Four. We have been changed at the end of verse 4. Chosen to be changed. Spurgeon said, if God hadn't chosen me before the foundation of the world, he wouldn't choose me now. In the great debates of election and predestination, people struggle with, did God choose me? Or did I choose him? Does God's choice make my choice irrelevant? Some people suggest that you are saved or damned forever because you were saved or damned forever. In this passage, Bishop Kremer makes this point. He says, Ephesians 1.4 cannot be taken to imply a division of mankind into two classes according to some divine plan before history began. It simply traces back the state of grace and Christian piety to the eternal and independent electing love of God. He also points out that this verb is always used in the scripture for, quote, God's dealings towards men in the scheme 
of redemption, unquote. Alfred prefers the, the, the idea of selection rather than election. In John 15, 16, Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. The doctrine of election is going to loom large in this book of Ephesians. But I want to bring it back just for a moment and remind you. We come to God on God's terms. God's terms is Repentance from sin and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our coming, according to Paul, is no accident. God knows our nature. God knows our need. And he still chooses us. From before the foundation of the world. Here's what it says. Our salvation has been carefully planned. By the Father. It's been carefully planned by the Son. It's been carefully planned by the Holy Spirit. So are we chosen without regard to faith in Christ? Or are we chosen in accordance with faith in Christ? The simple, most famous passage in all of the Bible, is when Jesus says to Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that, the, that through him the world might be saved. We rarely get past the debate to the reason for blessing so that we might be changed. The Lord chose us in him, in Christ. Look what it says. That we might be holy and without blame before him in love. John Phillips rightly says, God saves us sanctifies us and sees no blemish in us. Charles Hodge says, if men are chosen to be holy, they cannot be chosen because they are holy. And thirdly, it follows that holiness is the only evidence of election. And this is what's so impressive about the text. Well, how do I know if I'm elect? Spurgeon used to say, accept Christ, and you'll know. Spurgeon used to pray, save the elect, and then elect some more. But what Paul says is that the proof of election isn't simple profession. It's separation from sin and attachment to God. Holy does not mean morally superior. It doesn't mean intrinsically better than others. Holy means separate, distinct, different. But this is a conscious decision to separate from sin and then attach to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when Paul writes and he says, just as he chose us in him that is in Christ before the foundation of world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. The expression without blame is an interesting Greek word. It's amomos. It, it was used in the Septuagint in connection with animals that were offered for sacrifice. Remember the, the sacrificial animals had to be without spot or blemish. So here it carries the ethical connotation blameless. The idea of being blameless in character and in conduct. It doesn't mean sinless. It means blameless in character and conduct. God pardons us. 
He pardons us in Christ. He sanctifies us by the Holy Spirit. So the election that Paul describes isn't simply the journey from sinner to salvation. The emphasis is on the saint and sanctification. Look carefully at the expression that we should be holy, separated from sin, attached to him, and without blame before him in love. In other words, the motivation of the transformation is love, but it, it's not like a gooey, sloppy, agape feeling of sentiment that's being here spoken of. I'm going to suggest to you love here means in its most basic sense, it is the willingness to do what's right towards the object that is being loved. God will do what's right towards you. The reciprocity comes when you say, I'm going to do what's right towards God. This is a warning and a consolation. It's intended to motivate us towards personal holiness, but it's also supposed to comfort us. In what way? That at this very moment that we are before him in love. Now, let's back off again just for a moment. Do friends and family sometimes find it easy to find fault with you and blame you. We know that people watch us, don't we? Friends and family may find it easy to find fault with us and find blame in us. But in the eyes of love, with the spectacles, with the lens of love. For those of you who were here on Sunday, remember and I asked that telling question, how does God feel about the Jew? And I said, his first inclination is affection. The second is protection. The third is preservation. God sees us with the eyes of love. He watches us with the eyes of love. The world does not watch us with the eyes of love. So how in the world does God overlook our faults? How in the world does God overlook our failures? How in the world does God overlook when we are to be blamed? It's because God sees us in Christ. He sees us in Christ. We live in a world that's marked by rejection. Almost all of us have experienced some sort of rejection in our life. We, we've been rejected by strangers, and that's not so bad, but it's really hurtful when you're rejected by friends and, and when you're rejected by your family, when you go to school and they're picking the team and they don't pick you, when you're at work and they're picking someone to be promoted and they don't pick you. So on what basis does God choose you? And me, according to Paul, he chooses us on the basis of Christ. And when he chooses us on the basis of Christ, not only does he not reject us, but he accepts us. The issue of acceptance is over because we're adopted. Look what it says in verse 5. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. The simple meaning of the word predestined means to know in advance. Remember, elect means know in the past. Predestined means know in advance. In Acts chapter 4 verse 28 the word proridzo is the same word that Stephen uses in that, or, or that Peter uses in the speech in Romans chapter, excuse me, Acts chapter 4, 
Verse 28, when it's translated determined before. Five other times in Paul's writing, it's translated predestined. Romans 8, 29, for whom he did foreknow, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. In other words, it's a predestination that results in the transformation and the likeness of being like Jesus. Twice it's used in Ephesians here, and then again in verse 11 where it says, In him also we've obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the purpose of his will. In 1 Corinthians 2.7 it's rendered ordained, but the Greek word is foreordain, that is to decree or to make a declaration in advance. The emphasis is on the purpose of the decree, not on the subject of the decree. Here, he who is predestined speaks to the issue not just of who is predestined, but why they're predestined. In this case, it's the adoption as sons by Jesus to himself. Ralph Earl says, quote, foreknowledge, which is only another phrase of electing love, no more changes the nature of the future incident than afterknowledge can affect a historical fact. God's grace fits men for heaven. But men by unbelief prepare themselves for hell. It is not man's non-election. It's his continued sin that leads to eternal ruin. Some of our Calvinist friends would not agree with that. But I believe that it's always been sin that leads to ruin. And it's forgiveness of sin that leads to redemption, salvation, and reconciliation. We're predestined to adoption as sons by Jesus to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. The word adoption is an interesting word in the Greek language. It means to place as a son into a family. Now you've got to understand something that Paul was a Jew who's raised in a Greek culture in a Roman civil system with both Greek and Roman institutions. Listen carefully. Adoption was not a Jewish custom. Adoption was by and large a Roman custom. There are hints of adoption in the Old Testament. Jacob adopts the sons of Joseph born in captivity and Manasseh and Ephraim have all the rights as firstborn in Genesis 48.5. Mordecai informally adopts Esther in Esther chapter 2 verse 7. But Paul uses the metaphor of adoption again in Romans 8.23 and Galatians 4.5 in adoption. In that culture, it's an invitation to join a family circle. Salmond writes, quote, Adoption in the sense of legal transference of a child to a family to which it did not belong by birth had no place in the Jewish law, unquote. He continues, quote, Thus, among the Romans, a citizen might receive a child who was not his own by birth into his family and give him his name, but he could only do so by a formal act attested by witnesses. And the son thus adopted had all its entirety the position of a child by birth with all the rights and privileges pertaining to that, unquote. William Barclay has keen insight into the ancient ritual and application for the Christian. In the Roman world, Roman law prevailed. In Roman law, there was a thing called patria, potestas. It's the Roman civil idea of the absolute right of the father. In Roman culture and law, a father had absolute right over his child, so long as the child lived and so long as the father lived. He could sell his child as a slave. He could kill his child. Whatever land, property, titles, offices, it also belonged to the father. It's true that in Roman culture, a father could call a meeting of all male members of the household for consultation. 
but he had no obligation to follow that counsel. Again, Barclay writes at length, and I'm going to quote at length, quote, the ritual of adoption must have been impressive. It was carried out by a symbolic scale in which copper scales were used. Twice the real father sold his son, and twice he symbolically bought him back. Finally, he sold him a third time, and at the third sale, he did not buy him back. After this, the adopting father had to go to the praetor, which is a Roman magistrate, the principal Roman magistrate, and then plead his case for adoption. Only after this had gone, been gone through was the adoption complete. When the adoption was complete, it was complete indeed. The person who had been adopted had all the rights of a legitimate son in his new family. In the eyes of the law, he was a new person, so new that even all of his debts and obligations connected to the previous family were abolished as if they never existed, unquote. This becomes important, at least for me, who studies Roman history and, and Roman culture in the first century in the, in the ongoing adoption that took place in the Roman culture when you get to the time past Domitian, they, he, they have no heirs. And so Hadrian, excuse me, Trajan has to adopt Hadrian, who has to adopt Antoninus Pius, who has to adopt Marcus Aurelius, and each one of them go through this process and this Roman process of adoption. And so remember, Paul is writing to the Ephesians who are culturally Greek, but who are going to be aware of Roman customs. And then he uses this amazing image that you are adopted in Christ. The big question is, is our adoption complete or incomplete? In the book of Colossians, when Paul is writing, he's writing... Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, and Colossians, he, he basically says in another letter, you are complete in him. Not incomplete, complete. Our adoption is complete. We call God our Father. Jesus is the Lord. Does the fact that God is your Father, is it supposed to inform the way you think? the way you speak, the way you act. And finally, we're accepted. Look what it says in verse 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted. Note, our acceptance isn't because you've done something good or because you've done something wrong or because you went to church or because you memorized your Bible or because you led a thousand people to Christ. You're accepted in the beloved. You know, there's powerful, powerful, powerful cultural forces at work in our culture where we want desperately to be accepted. We want to be accepted by our peers. We want to be accepted by our family. We want to be accepted by the, the culture. But when he says, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved, it, it could say, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. The purpose of election, holiness, blamelessness, and praise. We're not rejected in the beloved. We are accepted in the beloved. And the phrase accepted in the beloved is all one word in the Greek language. It's ekaratisan. The word appears one other time in the Greek New Testament in Luke chapter 1 verse 28 where the angel speaking to Mary says, thou art highly favored. Same word. Kerato from charis, grace. It's, it's a word that Paul seems to have invented. 
It means to bestow grace or endow with grace or to find favor. The idea is that God has extended his favor or grace to us in Christ. When the angel says to Mary, highly favored one, it serves as the basis for our acceptance. Why are we accepted? Because of Christ. The word could literally be translated be graced. Now again, what's, what's hard is when you invent words in order to try and communicate a concept that seems to be entirely unknown. In order for us to understand it, let me use a different term. In Satan, we are slimed. In Christ, we are be graced. What Satan touches is slimy. What Jesus touches becomes graced. It reminds me, there was a young mother, she wrote, quote, I stayed with my parents for several days after the birth of our first child. One afternoon I remarked to my mother that it was surprising our baby had dark hair since both my husband and I are fair. She said, well, your daddy has black hair. But mama, that doesn't matter because I'm adopted. With an embarrassed smile, she said the most wonderful words I've ever heard. I always forget. We're blessed. We're chosen. We're adopted. We're accepted. We are blessed in Christ. We're chosen in Christ. Adopted in Christ. Accepted in Christ. When Matthew Henry was a small boy, his father taught him this act of commitment. Quote, I take God the Father to be my God. I take God the Son to be my Savior. I take God the Holy Spirit to be my sanctifier. I take the word of God to be my rule. I take the people of God to be my people. And I do hereby dedicate and yield my whole self to the Lord. And this I do deliberately, freely, and forever. What's interesting is the Father takes you in Christ. The Son takes you in himself. The Spirit takes you and sets you apart, making you holy and blameless, joined to a group of people, brothers and sisters in spirit. But this is all the fudge I can eat. Heavenly Father, we thank you for grace upon grace, blessing upon blessing, salvation, justification, forgiveness, power to testify, strength for spirit, for service, spirit of generosity, sweetness to sing, the ability to stand and strength when things aren't going exactly right. In Jesus' name, amen. And all